A story is told about an elderly man living in New Jersey many, many years ago who made an unusual discovery as he leafed through an old family Bible. Many years earlier, his elderly aunt had died and left the Bible to him in her will. The will read, To my beloved Stephen Marsh, I bequeath my family Bible and all it contains, along with the residue of my estate, after my funeral expenses and just and lawful debts are paid. When everything had been settled, the nephew received a few hundred dollars along with the old family Bible. This man lived for thirty years in poverty. As an old man, he was living on a small pension when he found the Bible in his attic. Leafing through the Bible that he had never opened, he discovered banknotes scattered through the pages. He counted over $5,000 in cash alone back when that was a lot of money. All those years, he had significant money within his grasp, yet he never knew it or used it. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 talks about God's last will and testament to believers in the person of Jesus Christ. He tells us, that the New Testament comes by promise, not performance. The man did not earn the money in that family Bible. It was his by promise. Yet he never enjoyed the promise. How many in this world are not enjoying the promise of God's salvation because they never accept it by faith? How many of us start by faith but then live by works. The Christian life turns into holiness by checklist. Performance, not promise, becomes the driving force in our lives. Friends, I want you to see two important truths about God's promise that will re-energize and refocus your Christian lives today. First, the promise is unilateral. Galatians 3, verses 15 and 16. The promise is unilateral. Paul wrote in Galatians 3, 14, that we receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He continues that theme in verses 15 and 16. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. The word covenant, which Paul uses here, generally referred in Scripture to a contract between two people. Paul argues that it is common knowledge that a contract which is legally signed by both parties cannot be nullified or amplified in any way by a third party. Another person cannot add or subtract anything from that contract. Only the principals who signed the contract can change it. But 
I think that Paul is saying something more subtle than simply that here. The word for covenant could also be used for will or testament. Most contracts are bilateral, meaning that two parties signed the contract. However, a last will or testament is a contract that is unilateral, meaning that only one party signs the testament. The other party has no say in the contents or disposition of that last will or testament. A human will is unilateral. Under Roman law, which is not much different on this point than our laws today, a testator could add, delete, or alter the contents of his will. But no one else could do that. Furthermore, the will was validated or ratified by the death of the testator. Once the testator died, the will could not be changed, for it was now in force. In other words, the last will and testament was unilateral. Only one party could ever alter that testament, and when that party was dead, it could never be changed. A few years ago, my wife and I both lost our last surviving parents at the same time. My father died on the morning that I was preparing to preach at my mother-in-law's memorial service. Following the deaths of our parents, my wife and I each endured a crash course in the intricacies of the probate court system. We each became the executor of each estate. Now in Maine, the executor is called the personal representative. Fortunately, we both hired good lawyers to help us navigate the probate system. We each set up bank accounts, paid bills, dispersed money and property in accordance with the last will and testaments of our parents. The probate court required, for example, that I follow the will without regard to what I or any other family member thought should be done. It was irrelevant whether we agreed with Dad's decisions as written in his will. I had to follow the letter of the law down to the very penny of the estate. A human will is unilateral. In the same way, a divine will is unilateral. The promises of the Abrahamic covenant were made by God, not by man. Therefore, God was obligated to keep those promises to Abraham because God alone made the promises. Abraham had no say in the divine will. No, Paul makes a very interesting and detailed theological point here. He settles on the fact that the promise to Abraham used the collective noun seed rather than another noun that might be clearly plural. Paul is not saying that the word seed cannot be plural. It surely can, just like we use the word seed, both for a single seed or for many seeds. Paul is simply pointing out 
that God chose not to use another word which would have to be plural, like children or descendants. Those are plural words. Rather, he used a word which could be understood as singular because, Paul says, in a very specific way, God was speaking about Jesus Christ as the singular seed of Abraham. God spoke his promise to Abraham for his specific and most important descendant, Jesus Christ. In a sense, God made promises to himself as well as to Abraham. Therefore, no one else could ever change that covenant promise. Neither God the Father nor God the Son will alter that promise. The last will and testament is fixed and certain in the person, the seed, in the person of the testator, Jesus Christ, who will die to put that into effect. The promise is irrevocable because it is unilateral. Abraham did not enter into a contractual relationship with God. God wrote out a will which contained unilateral promises. God would perform those promises to Abraham no matter what. Abraham, of course, is still waiting for some of those promises to be ultimately fulfilled. But God will fulfill all of his promises to Abraham someday. Paul is recalling the events of Genesis 15 here. The story is very picturesque. In the ancient Near East, when you wanted to sign a covenant, a contract, with someone, you would take an animal and kill it. You would slice that animal in two at the backbone, and then you would lay the parts opposite to one another. In Genesis 15, the heifer, the goat, and the ram were all sliced in two and laid end to end and opposite one another. Then the two parties in that contract would walk together between the bloody carcasses as their signatures to the contract. They were saying that such would be the end of either one of us if we break the contract. Perhaps... We'd have fewer broken contracts today if we performed such a striking ceremony every time we signed a contract. Well, if you go back and read Genesis 15, where this is all recorded for us, you will find something very important. You will find that Abraham was asleep during the entire ceremony. God alone walked between the bloody carcasses. That is a beautiful picture of God's will and testament to the believer. God alone signed his last will and testament. Abraham had nothing to do with it. God alone makes his promise to us in the bloody death of his son, Jesus Christ. We only have to accept the promises of God by faith. And that's why I say to you that the New Testament comes by promise, not performance. Think of our wedding vows. 
Wedding vows are unconditional promises. We promise ourselves to one another, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, in poverty and wealth, until death do us part. There are no prenuptial agreements in true wedding vows. We do not pledge ourselves to each other if, if you cook my meals, or if you manage the home, or pay the bills, or if you meet my needs. If is not part of a true wedding vow. Wedding vows do not have an if before I will. I often asked a question in my premarital sessions with couples over the years. And the question was this. Can you think of any reason why you would divorce your spouse? Can you think of any reason why you would divorce your spouse? Sometimes people would say that they would get a divorce if the spouse was sexually unfaithful. And we would discuss that possibility. And I would point out that even in that circumstance, you do not have to assume a divorce is inevitable. Well, what about if your spouse became totally incapacitated and could not meet your needs in any way? The point of these hypotheticals is that if there is an if in the vow, then your vow is no longer unconditional. I was asking the couple, is your love unconditional? My friends, God does not base his love on our performance. He bases it on his promise. Even if we are unfaithful, God is faithful in his love. Just read the book of Hosea to see this truth in all its glory. God doesn't say to us that he will save us only as long as we obey his laws. God doesn't say, I do, as long as you do. God just says, I do. His promise is unilateral. And the second truth about God's promise is that the promise is immutable in verses 17 and 18. The promise is immutable. Paul writes, What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. God's promise is permanent. God's promise is unchanging. It is immutable. Paul makes this point on the basis of the example he has just cited about even human wills let alone God's will and testament in the person of Jesus Christ. The promise of God in Christ as the seed cannot be altered by the law because promise precedes law in verse 17. Promise precedes law. Nothing can change the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. Not even the law, which God instituted 430 years later, 
could alter the promise that God had made to Abraham earlier. The law does not render ineffective the promise as if God had changed his mind about salvation. I should stop for a moment and make a comment or two about this verse, Galatians 3.17, because it is so often the subject of attacks by those who want to discredit the Bible. It was 215 years after Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees because of God's promise that the people went down to Egypt and were eventually enslaved. It was another 430 years that they lived in slavery before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. That's a total of 645 years from Abraham's call to the Exodus and the law. Is this then an error in the Bible? No, the Bible is inerrant. There have been many ingenious explanations of this passage, But the simplest explanation of the numbers is best. There is a simple explanation here. Just read the text carefully. Literally, the text reads like this. A covenant previously ratified by God, the law coming after 430 years does not nullify. You will notice that the 430 years is counted from the ratification of the covenant, not the first giving of the covenant. The Greek word ratify means to confirm. Perhaps that will help clarify the numbers. When was the covenant confirmed? Well, it was confirmed repeatedly throughout the patriarchal period. However, the final confirmation of the Abrahamic covenant was given to Jacob shortly before he went down to Egypt to join Joseph. God told Jacob, And in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, in Genesis 28.14. God tells Jacob the same promises about the land and the nation that he gave to Abraham in Genesis 35.9-12. He is confirming or ratifying the covenant. And he tells Jacob at that time to go down to the land of Egypt to live out his days, for he will make a great nation of him. That's in Genesis 46, verses 3 and 4. And it is 430 years later that the law is given, 430 years after the ratification of the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob. The point of all this historical detail is that the law cannot nullify the promises of God. So why return to a performance salvation instead of a promise salvation? Someone has said that the promises of God are certain, but they don't all mature in 90 days. Abraham needed to understand that truth because he never saw the fulfillment of his promises. Neither did Isaac. Neither did Jacob. Yet Jacob insisted that his bones be buried in the land of Israel on faith that God would keep his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
He said that in Genesis 48:21 and in chapter 50 in verse 5. Joseph also insisted that his bones would be carried back to the land of Israel on faith in God's promises, according to Genesis 50, verses 22 to 26. Their burials back in the land of Israel were pledges of faith in the promises of God. Many of those promises still await fulfillment even today. God's promises don't mature in 90 days, my friends, but God always keeps his promises. A memorial service celebrating the death of a Christian today is a pledge of faith in the promise of God. That's what we're doing. Hebrews 11 is the great faith chapter, and it begins in Hebrews 11 verse 1, with these words. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith lives and acts on the basis of what God has said and done, even when we can't see the results. Obedience is simply the feat of faith. When we obey what the Bible says, we do so because we believe what the Bible says. Hebrews 11 goes on to say in verses 8 through 10, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith. He lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. They were heirs of the same promise that we inherit. It is the promise of life eternal in Jesus Christ. We share in that promise by faith in his blood. The death and resurrection of the testator guarantees our future inheritance. We are aliens in this land, just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This world is not our home. We are immigrants passing through on our way to a heavenly home. We live now looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. And that promise is immutable. It is unchangeable because promise precedes law. However, the promise is more than that because promise opposes law in verse 18 of Galatians 3. Promise opposes law. A will always has an inheritance. And now Paul talks about that inheritance. What he is saying is that the inheritance which we share with Abraham comes only by promise, not performance. The law cannot give you that inheritance. Our salvation is a matter of faith, not law. In fact, 
The word which Paul used to explain this truth is grace. The word translated gave or granted is the Greek word for grace. God graced us with his promise. Grace is something that you do not deserve. I do not deserve. I cannot earn God's grace. You cannot earn God's grace. Grace incurs no debt. We get our inheritance by grace, not law. And if we try to make our inheritance based on our works, to pay God back, if you will, then it is no longer based on promise. Promise and law are mutually exclusive principles of life. They are opposite ways of life. You have to make a choice between living by promise or living by law. There's a story told about a poor criminal who stood before an eastern king trembling for his life. The man had been condemned to die and was about to be decapitated. He asked for a drink of water before he died. They brought him a drink, but his hands were trembling so much that he could not drink the water. The king spoke kindly to him and said, Do not be so alarmed. Your life is safe until you drink that water. Instantly, the man took the clay container of water and threw it down on the pavement where it shattered into pieces and the water ran away. Then, looking up at the king with blazing eyes, he claimed the promise of the king for himself. The king smiled bitterly and said, You have won your life, for I cannot break my word, you are saved. Now that is the difference between promise and law. The prisoner could have clung to the law and died. Justice, according to the law, required death, but he chose to claim the promise of the king and lived. Paul is asking us in this passage, what do you choose? Make a choice between promise and performance. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot mix promise and law. Choose the promise and live. Why, why, my friend, would you try to live by the accomplishments of your performance in life rather than trust in the power of his promise for life? Imagine that you are in the middle of a great ocean without any help. The law is like dead weight around your legs as you try to swim. Your performance is never good enough for God. It drags you down, and you are drowning in your failures. You always come up short. You can't make it. Well, God's grace is like the knife that slices you free from the law which is dragging you under. God's promise is like a life preserver that holds you up whenever you start to go down. Are you clinging to his promises today? The New Testament comes by promise, not performance. This is the New Testament, the new covenant in his blood. Imagine 
the bloody carcasses in Abraham's vision where God alone walks between them to sign his covenant while Abraham slept. Now remember that Jesus Christ died alone on that cross to sign his testament to us in his blood. Jesus' last will and testament cannot be revoked. The testator has died. His last will and testament must be carried out, so our inheritance is secure in him. The New Testament in his blood comes by promise, not performance. Communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, is the celebration of his promise made to us in his blood. In communion, we regularly celebrate the drama of redemption, the glory of his grace. Every time we take communion, we are acting out in a one-act play the power of his promise to us in the death of Christ. Let his grace free you from the chains of the law that drag you down as you trust in the power of his promise for eternal life. 